Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, fellow time travelers. I hope you're well. To help support this podcast, sign up to my patreon.com site. It gives you exclusive access to new videos every week. Uh, The last two videos were about D-Day and Buried Viking Treasure. Who could ask for more? The site is packed, full of history, current affairs and a whole lot more. To get your hands on it, go to patreon.com and search for me, Neil Oliver. It'd be great to see you there. Uh, In the meantime, here's the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. They ate part of his body, and forever after, some of Cook's bones were kept in a bowl, as a kind of an offering to their gods. In this podcast, we're climbing on the shoulders of a hero who helped us see the world. As a young lad, he came to Whitby to learn the craft that would make him famous, studying mathematics, navigation, astronomy. As he sailed up and down the eastern seaboard, delivering coal between the rivers Tyne, and Thames. Ambitious and adventurous, he joined the Royal Navy, determined, as he said it, to go as far as it is possible for a man to go. Aboard his valiant ship, HMS Endeavour, he set off to chart a planet's progress and to discover a new world. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil, in the last podcast we met a young grocer's lad. He really wasn't suited to the retail trade but was about to discover his true calling. How's he getting on now? Yeah, well, last week we met young James Cook, uh, who was staring out of the shop window where he worked, dreaming of a life at sea. This week, we pick up the story, as he's given a helping hand to discover his true calling. We're in the hauntingly beautiful seaside town of Whitby in North Yorkshire, to see young James become the legend that is, was, Captain Cook. We are in Whitby. Whitby in North Yorkshire, a place that's so associated with seaside holidays in particular, when it was in its heyday, you know, sort of from Victorian times onwards, but it's still a hugely popular destination. The name Whitby is probably, well, it is Norse, a Viking, it means the white town. When you hear a place name that ends in Bay, B-Y, it means the town. So Whit, White, Bay, town, Whitby. It is famous for its fish, isn't it? Yes, yes, it's famous for, for seafood, fish and chips, traditional fish and chips, all of that. 
absolutely redolent of traditional English, British, seaside. It's dripping with it. We'll come to Whitby itself in a bit, but I should probably say right at the top why it's in the love letter to the British Isles. And just last week we were in Staithes, further north in Yorkshire, and we told the story there about Captain Cook, or James Cook as he was then, just a lad, and he'd come to Staithes to be a grocer's boy, a grocer's apprentice. And he was sent away from there because he was a hopeless grocer's apprentice, as it turned out. (laughs) He obviously had a very nice boss uh, who was quite sensitive to the fact that young James spent all his time looking out the window at the sea. At the time, Staithes was a busy fishing port and all of James's attention was obviously captured by these ships coming and going. So the, the grocer made arrangements for young James to go and become an apprentice to his contact and friend in Whitby, Captain John Walker. And Captain John Walker had a colliery business. He had coal ships moving the precious fuel of coal up and down the east coast of England. And the grocer rightly surmised that James would be happier there. This one's quite funny, I suppose, this love letter, because it means that twice in a row, two weeks in a row, we're talking about the same person. But... In a story about Britain, James Cook is, is a bright light. But, or he is for me, because the British Isles have been so much a story of the sea. The dominance that came for the British Royal Navy in the 17 and 1800s. And our association with all things maritime is writ large. And nobody, I think I can confidently say, did more to establish, to lay the foundations for... Britain's naval and maritime excellence than James Cook. He was a navigator and adventurer. Maybe there are others as good, but there's nobody better. He's a miraculous figure. It's certainly in the way that I understand the the British Isles. So he gets two mentions, two in a row. Seventeen forty-five was when James arrived in Staithes. But by 1746, aged around 18, he's in Whitby. And he he meets up with Captain John Walker, the man with the coal ships. And he signs up to a contract, as was the custom of the day. And in those days, what they did was they wrote out the contract, word for word, twice on the same piece of paper. And then it was torn in half in a deliberately jagged and unique line. And it meant that One person took the one half and the other signatory took the other. And at any point in the future, they could come together and fit the two unique pieces together and they would be shown to be part of the same original document. And so a contract that was torn in that way was said to be indented. And anyone who had signed such a contract was said to be indentured. You sign on the bottom line and you're committing yourself to somebody, usually for a period of time, three years, seven years, whatever, and it's indentured service because the two pieces of, of the two halves of the contract would fit together. So James signed up to one of these. So he, he, he's signing up to be trained as a sailor. Absolutely. A, a merchant seaman, basically. And he was lucky. He was lucky in many respects for a lot of his life, James. He, he was, on the one hand, his grocer boss understood him and suggested where he should go. And Captain Walker, who received him, was attentive And he saw to it that young James studied all the things you'd need to be a a ship's captain. Mathematics, uh, navigation, astronomy, 
because obviously they were they were navigating by the stars and by the position of the sun. So he, he had him do all of that. Walker was also a devout Quaker, strongly religious figure. So no doubt, uh, I, I couldn't prove this, but I bet he would know the verses 23 and 24 of Psalm 107. They that go down to the sea in ships that do business in great waters, these see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. And James Cook certainly did that. There's local tradition in Whitby, but no certainty that young James had a room in a house on Grape Street, where he came and went, mostly be at sea, but when he was in the town he was at this address in Grape Street, and he, he, did, he did three years as determined by his indentured contract. So he was on ships up and down the east coast between the rivers Tyne and the River Thames. That was his patch during that time of his apprenticeship. So he was a merchant navy man, but he was ambitious. And he understood that to get ahead in the game, to really forge a, a, a bright path, he should join His Majesty's Royal Navy because you know military experience would accelerate him up through the ranks. So in 1755, he did so, signed up to the Royal Navy. And he was excellent. He always was able to demonstrate his unique abilities. And within two years, he had passed his master's exams and he was commanding vessels off the east coast of North America. So he's still a relatively young man and he's, he's on the other side of the Atlantic. But even that, even that wasn't enough to satisfy him. There's a reference to a note that he made in a diary and they sound like something from the Starship Enterprise. He said that he wanted to go not just further than any man has been before me, but as far, I think, as it is possible for a man to go. To boldly go where no man has gone before, <laughs> as penned by James Cook, centuries before Captain Kirk. But it, it's just, it's inspirational, isn't it? You know, as far as, as I think it is possible for a man to go. Do we know what sort of man he was at that age? He was very, he was very, he was very competent. He was just a, an extremely able sailor. Very skilled, very committed. He'd be one of these characters you can imagine who was always just happier at sea. And whenever he was back on land, be kicking his heels, just waiting for the next opportunity to be away. You know, he didn't want to be in the smaller world of back home. He wanted to be out, as far out as he could get, seeing. He was just an adventurer. He just wanted to go boldly, as far as it was possible to go. Did his men like him? Yes. Ah, uh -huh. he was. He was. A, I mean, he was. He was a. He was a, a, a strict officer. You had to be when you're out in the open sea, uh, in command of maybe hundreds of men. There has to be discipline, or you're looking at chaos. So he was stiff disciplinarian, but crewmen are, are apt to trust a man that can get them to where they're going and get them back again. You know, they, they realised that if they, put their, if they put their faith in him and they did what they were told, he would keep them alive. You know, he would get them there and get them home. So he had the respect of the men. Um, so in 1768, he gets command of a ship described as His Majesty's Bark Endeavour. A bark is a, 
classification of, of ship that the Royal Navy used really as a kind of a description of an otherwise nondescript vessel. It's an old word. It comes out of Celtic and French. Barge has some of the same etymological roots. So it'd been a collier. It was built in Whitby. It came out of the same place as Cook did his apprenticeship. It originally been called the Earl of Pembroke, but it was acquired by the Royal Navy and it was renamed the Endeavour. Now, it was acquired under the auspices of the, the Royal Society, the Royal Society of London, who in 1768, they were well aware that there was an astronomical event coming down the line at them. In fact, in 1769, there would be a transit of Venus. Now, that's an astronomical event where the planet Venus can be seen to drift across the sun, to drift in between Earth and the sun. So it's like a tiny moat of dust drifting across the surface of a golden eye. That's the transit of Venus. And the, the Royal Society of London knew that if they could get people to as many different locations on planet Earth as possible and make various measurements using sextants and the rest and other astronomical equipment, they would have a better understanding of where Venus sat in the solar system. Because at that time, in the 1760s, scientists were of a mind to try and properly understand the relationship of the planets of the solar system. You know, and the position of the moon and the sun. You know, they, they were trying to build up a proper understanding of how far it was, what the distances were, what the relationships were. So measuring the transit of Venus was an important step. And so in 1768, with a year to play with, they commissioned... Cook to command this vessel, the Endeavour, to go as far away <laughs> as far away from London as possible and make the measurements, you know, so you can start to sort of triangulate. So he was dispatched, he was only a lieutenant at the time, but such was his demonstrable ability with the sextant, he was made commander of the voyage. So it was a great leg up, a great step up for James. Uh, so off they went, 1768. By now, it's the, the ship has been renamed the Endeavour, and it was absolutely packed to the gunnels. I mean, what really moves me profoundly is, realistically, a voyage like that undertaken then is at least the equal, if not the superior, of going to the moon. It's as outlandish. It's as impossible. It's as difficult. And when these ships went away, there's no radioing back to Mission Control. Houston, we have a problem. Can you help us fix it? If something goes wrong in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, you either fix it yourselves with no help from base, or you don't. They are alone in a way that even the astronauts of the Apollo programme would not experience. They could talk to home. They could talk to their wives and children. There was none of that. So in a sense, although it's hard to imagine for us now, those voyages were as intrepid and easily as doomed to failure and disaster. Such was the extremity of what they were undertaking. So they, were, they packed out the ship as far as they could with all the things they might need, because if they didn't have it, they weren't going back for it. <laughs> you know, you better be looking at it or rather than looking for it, because it, it has to come. And the main financier of the trip, you know, these things had to be underwritten by somebody with money. So on behalf of the Royal Society of London, 
It was underwritten by a botanist, another brilliant figure called Sir Joseph Banks. Now, he was a, a wealthy guy, you know, born to wealth, born to position, but he was learned. He was a, he was a student of, of science and he had established a reputation as a botanist. And so he was going to come along on the trip. Not only was he paying for it, he was coming. And as befitted a man of his station, it was agreed that he would share digs aboard with Captain Cook. And Captain Cook's accommodations on the ship would have been far, far better than what was being experienced by the common sailors, but still not much. You know, the endeavour was not big and the space made available for the captain was not great. And now it was divided in two. And apparently both Cook and Banks were big men, tall, rangy. Not heavy set, but tall and skinny. So you can imagine them (laughs) moving about inside the confined cabins like praying mantises trying to keep out of each other's way and deal with their own paperwork and all the rest of it. So we can only speculate about what that must have been like. But off they went. But they were both brilliant men, each in his own way. And what they'd achieved on that voyage was just extraordinary. And it's interesting, really. By 1769, they were in Tahiti, which was where they would view the transit of Venus. That's 200 years before Apollo 11, Man on the Moon. So there's a nice little parallel between the two great voyages of Endeavour. So to get to Tahiti, they departed from Plymouth in August of 1768. So they crossed the Atlantic Ocean, so they're heading into the west. And then they came round Cape Horn at the bottom of South America and then out into the Pacific. They arrived in Tahiti in time for the transit of Venus and they did all that. They made all the relevant observations, made all the measurements, so filed that away. And then from that point on, the rest of the voyage was pure discovery. Off into territory that, as far as the people of the British archipelago were concerned, it was like, like you know, they, they were out in the solar system, effectively. They were away. They were out where the buses don't go. Everything was new uh, for them. Banks was an obsessive collector. So he starts stuffing the hold of the endeavour with all sorts of preserved specimens, everything he can get his hands on. At Tahiti, they had made contact with a nobleman uh, named Tupaya, uh, and he, it became apparent, had a great understanding of the islands of Polynesia. Polynesia means the place of many islands, and because he knew so much, they persuaded him to join the endeavour. So he came aboard. And he stayed with them. He stayed with the endeavour until his death in 1770 in Batavia, which is the name that was given then to what we know as Jakarta. So he came away from his homeland never to see it again. But he spent that time aboard the endeavour. By the October 1769, they were in New Zealand. And then by April of 1770, the following year, they found Australia. I say found Australia. The people living in Australia already knew it was Australia. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> there had been there had been Homo sapiens on Australia by that point for about <laughs> for about sixty thousand years. Uh, so it wasn't exactly discovered, but it was discovered from the point of view of people from the British archipelago. There had always been even the Greeks and the Romans in their own day had speculated that because of all the continents, all the dry land they knew about in the northern hemisphere of the planet, they reasoned that. There had to be a counterbalancing weight of land in the south because they figured otherwise the planet Earth would sort of tip upside down. So they figured there must be something there and it was known as Terra Australis Incognita. 
the unknown southern continent. So even the Greeks and the Romans correctly speculated that there must be places down there. And by the time, I mean, to be fair, by the time Cook got there in 1770, other European vessels had bumped into the Australian continent, especially in the north. But although they found it, it wasn't necessarily the case that they knew what they had found. You know, in that way that uh, Columbus bumped into America and thought it was Asia. So they, they were kind of accidentally coming upon these coastlines. But Cook had a better idea of what he was doing, where he was. And he's certainly credited with doing some of the first survey. And he encountered the eastern seaboard of the Australian continent and he charted it all the way from sort of Botany Bay, down where Sydney is, and, and up through the, the Great Barrier Reef, that reef that sits off the eastern seaboard of the Australian continent. They had problems there. They ran on to some of the Great Barrier Reef, put a hole in the bottom of the Endeavour, but they, they were able to fix it. The Endeavour was a particularly useful vessel when it came to that because she had a, a shallow draft and a flat bottom. And when they knocked a hole in it, what they were able to do was use spare sail coated in, in all sorts of pitch and other sticky waterproof material, and they hauled it underneath the hull, and it became a kind of a sticking plaster patch over the hole and it let them get to somewhere else where they could make more permanent repairs. But it was yet another demonstration of Cook's ability. I mean, you put a hole in the bottom of your boat off the Great Barrier Reef, you know, for many people that would be, that would be a significant problem. But, but Cook got them out of that because he had the command skills and he had the, the ability and, the, and just the straightforward leadership. And on it went. Eventually, Cook and Banks and the crew uh, they came back to Plymouth on the 10th of July, 1771. So they had been away from home for three years. You know, the astronauts don't go for three years. They might have to when they go for Mars, but gone for three years. Is that why one of the spaceships was called the Endeavour? Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll get to that. So he's just, he's just extraordinary. I want to say this first of all. You know, he's, there he was, just a lad as a grocer's apprentice in Stays. His imagination and his ambition is sparked by watching the fishing vessels. And from there he goes to Whitby and he becomes a merchant seaman. And then he's off and he never looks back. That voyage that we've just looked at was the first of three. So he continued, he continued to map and to understand planet Earth as really as nobody else had done before him. Certainly nobody from the British archipelago. On a subsequent voyage he found he was in Hawaii. I say again, the Hawaiian islanders already knew that Hawaii was there. Let's make that quite clear. He discovered it on behalf of, on behalf of Britain. The people there, the Polynesians of Hawaii, it said that when they saw the ships coming in with their white sails, they thought it was clouds descended from heaven. Obviously, they were seagoing people in their own right, fantastic navigators, but they had never seen anything on the scale of Cook's vessel. And with the billowing white sails, at first they comprehended it as clouds come down from heaven. And then when they fired the cannon aboard ship to sort of announce their arrival, the locals in Hawaii thought it was the, the thunderous voice of their god, Lono. So he, when he first arrived, the locals brought him in as a, almost a divine figure, almost godlike, as though he had descended from heaven. But he went back 
In February 1779, and there was a misunderstanding of considerable note which culminated in Cook being beaten to death wow. by the locals. And they ate part of his body. So he partly cannibalised. Eventually, the rest of him, the most of him, was given back to the crew. But forever after, some of Cook's bones were kept in a bowl as a kind of an offering to their gods. It's all so bizarre. The grocer's apprentice from Stades, and by the end of his life, you know, some of his body was kept by the people of Hawaii as an offering to their god. I, I, I mean, Captain Kirk had some, had some exciting fictional <laughs> adventures, but, but nothing stranger than what happened to Captain Cook. And yes, yes, you said the, the space shuttle Endeavour. When the Americans put Endeavour together and launched it, they bothered to spell Endeavour in the English way, ending O-U-R. Ordinarily, the American spelling, American English would have had it end O-R. But in honour, in respect to Captain Cook's ship, they retained the English spelling. And a bolt, a copper bolt from Cook's Endeavour, the ship built in Whitby, went aboard the space shuttle Endeavour and joined that voyage so that the first endeavour was there. Its adventure was continued aboard the space shuttle endeavour, which demonstrates, apart from anything else, that you know America, the USA, acknowledged literally the endeavour, the adventurous spirit of Captain Cook. But just to think of that, that, that's another thing that puts the hairs up in my neck, to think of that copper bolt from that 18th century ship that had already, in its own right, done so much, and then it went aboard a spaceship. It actually went aboard a spaceship and went into outer space. I I find that just deeply affecting, just deeply moving. And then, you know, after all that, you know, we have to think about Whitby itself. And I love it. Have you been there, Paul? You've been to Whitby? Many times. Many times. It's great, isn't it? It's just one of those... Yeah. It's just excellent. It's, Whitby's just a fantastic place. You know, as I say, it means the, the name means the white town. And it's pretty. It's what you'd imagine, what you'd want an English fishing village to be. It's a geological oddity. It's where two separate geological events come together during the formation of this of this dry land of the British Isles. So that on one side, the East Cliff, fossil hunters find ammonites, belemnites, and plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs. A plesiosaur is supposed to be the Loch Ness monster, you know, that kind of that kind of creature. So they find that. And there's Whitby Jet, we talked about Whitby Jet last time, which is fossilised monkey puzzle trees. I mean, I, have, I, I never get tired of saying that. The Whitby Jet is fossilised monkey puzzle trees. That fact never gets old for me. And then on the other side, on the West Cliffs, the sandstone there is full of other fossils, but from other times entirely. For a lot of people, the principal thing that they'll associate Whitby with is Bram Stoker's Dracula. Bram Stoker, the novelist, the writer, in 1890 he was in Whitby. So a good long time after Captain Cook's day. And he stayed at Mrs. Veazey's guest house on Royal Crescent. And he loved the cliffs and the streets and the, and the red-roofed cottages. But he was particularly caught by the clifftop ruins of Whitby Abbey. That was built by Benedictine monks in the 11th century. So in the 10 hundreds, that abbey was up there. 
and near the abbey is the Church of St Mary. And the Church of St Mary up on the cliff tops is reached by 199 stone steps from the beach below. And so they caught his eye. And everything about it, I suppose, was just gothic or became gothic in his imagination. And when he came to write Count Dracula, he has him arrive in Britain via Whitby. And he, he comes in aboard a ship called the Demeter. And as the novel has it, when the ship is coming into sight of Whitby, all the crew have vanished. And there's only the captain left, and the captain's dead, and his dead body is lashed to the ship's wheel. And so the ship comes in at an unnatural pace, and when it comes close enough to land, a, a great black dog, a hound, is seen to leap from the ship, and it lands on the beach, and it runs up the steps to the church. And of course, a black dog is one of the forms a vampire can take. So this is Dracula, one of the iconic villains, monsters of all of literature, makes his arrival in the British archipelago in these isles via Whitby, which is just perfect. Captain Cook was a legend, and he departed from Whitby and headed into the West. And then, a hundred and odd years later, another legend arrives in Whitby out of the East. It's just too good to be true. You couldn't make it up. a city fizzing with new ideas, a time when Edinburgh was said to be filled with geniuses. Surrounded by the evidence in hard rock, a city where the bare bones of the world are exposed for all to see, a man dared to ask questions that had never been asked before, contemplate deep time and confront us with our insignificance in the face of eternity. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast, which is and always will be free, and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. Be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.